you're not as awful as you think you are. And if you are, you can get better. It's okay. I think everything was more of a blank slate and just in a more proactive state of mind. And I thought, I don't want to be like all my friends all depressed about turning 40. It just really sucks. And it was basically like in defiance of turning 40. And also I knew that my body wasn't getting younger. So if I'm going to get back into skating, I got to do it now. And so actually the week that I turned 40 is when I laced up my skates and I went back to the ice rink. It's one of the few things I do that's just solely for me. I don't do it for anyone else. I'm not competing. I'm not trying to get a medal. I don't get paid for it. I pay money to do it. My body, like I have so many bumps and bruises from it. So I solely do it because I love it. And it is one of the best things I've done for myself. Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Sue. Hello, welcome to a special episode of Wild Show. I'm your host, Andrew Shu, and as always, have my co-host, Will Chang. Hey, how's it going? Today's guest is Hanny Pei. Hanny is an ice skater, candy lover, dog philanthropist, in a previous life was an attorney for Cook County for helping disabled adults, and is now a director and trust advisor doing estate law. But really, we wanted to bring Hanny on because is she has stories that I don't ever hear from other people. And so this is going to be potentially our episode of a random show, and we're just going to riff. So it's going to be great. Welcome, Hanny. Thanks for having me. Why should we view Tim Liu and bring him on? In my course of work, I'm very lucky in the sense that I get to meet a lot of people I probably wouldn't meet otherwise. So there's one person that Andrew, you've met before. It's my friend Tim Luke. He is the head of Heinemann Appraisals. And he's just lived 1,000 million lives. He went to New York initially to do theater work. Somehow ended up, I think, working at Christie's. It was Christie's or Sotheby's, one of those, just to, because he needed to make a living. And now he's the head of Heinemann Appraisals. He travels the world and he has all these random stories about things that happens to him. He travels appraising tangible personal property for estates. So that can range from anywhere from fine art, sculptures, jewelry, coins, all sorts of stuff. I guess I should back up a little bit. For a living right now, I basically, for a lack of a better description, I work with dead people stuff. So when someone passes away, usually you have an executor for a will, right? And you have a trust for a trustee. Sometimes when people reach a certain level of wealth, or their estate is complex enough that they need to bring professionals in. It's not like just having your kid be your executor. So I work for a bank in the professional trust department, and that's what we do. So a lot of the times when someone passes away, I need to get stuff appraised so I know what I'm working with. There may be a painting over like in the bathroom that someone bought at a garage sale. And then the appraiser comes and they said, oh, they didn't know what they were buying. That thing was actually worth 100 We actually had one painting that was worth a million dollars. They had no idea. They just found it in a garage somewhere. So the point is that I don't know that stuff, right? I love art. I love these sort of random things, but I just don't have that kind of knowledge. So you need to bring in a generalist to assess everything. And they can bring in subject matter experts. If you find these rocks that look like they might be precious, then maybe you bring in a gemologist. If you find some painting that looks like it's maybe a French impressionist, then you may need to figure out who the artist is and you contact that Usually there's some sort of certification board that will authenticate it for you. So that sort of stuff. So that's how I met Tim. And I basically, we had this estate in New York that they have a co-op on the Upper East Side. 
And it was during COVID. So it was during the lockdown. We couldn't travel. And all we knew it was that we had this co-op that was like hoarded full of stuff. So I brought Tim in. And, you know, it was just like a regular kind of professional relationship of, okay, like this is what we know that is probably in the unit. And I had this list of, it was like a hundred pages of just like itemized things, like everything from throw pillows to paintings to everything from like super not valuable to very valuable in there. And I basically told Tim that he, number one, needed to go on a treasure hunt for all of these things. And number two, needed to tell me what else is in the unit. And so it was kind of just, this is kind of what we do. This is how we start. And then I remember one day, Tim, he texted me and he said, okay, we need to talk. Can you please call me? So first he tells me that one of the rooms, it's, I should back up. So this particular co-op has very wealthy people who live there, like people who I don't understand that level of wealth. They put it this way, if a celebrity were to apply for this co-op, they would get turned down because they don't want the paparazzi. So you have like a lot of foreign money. That's anyways. So the point is, you think that this co-op is going to be like very, very super nice, right? In my head, when I go into that type of place, it's just beautiful. No, it's hoarded with toilet paper everywhere. I mean, these people have, we're talking maybe like eight, nine figures in terms of wealth. And it's just toilet paper everywhere from like floor to ceiling. You can't even walk through. The first time I went there, we were still discovering rooms on day two because we couldn't get past the toilet paper and the paper towels and the PPE, like all sorts of random. Like, how the hell, how, the hell does this happen? Like, this is what I have a law degree for to sift through toilet paper. And the thing is that at that point in the pandemic, toilet paper was so rare that we're like, I don't think I can even throw this away because it's probably worth money. And we have to maximize how much money we make for the beneficiaries. And this is all going to charity also. So we're like, we don't want to cut the charity short. Like this might actually be worth money. So we actually had the toilet paper collection appraised, included in the appraisal report. (laughs) 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 So, I mean, like this is, I think, why Andrew thinks they have a lot of stories because I come across these sort of weird scenarios that you just really wouldn't think of. I have a law degree and I'm a director. (laughs) within this bank and I'm sifting through a toilet paper, a very wealthy estate. Well, anyway, so Tim calls me and he said, look, I was going through the room that has all the toilet paper and he found a sketch from a very famous French impressionist. So this is an artist that you would find probably at like the Met or the Art Institute of Chicago. So without really giving too much detail, but I would say it's around the same genre of like Monet, Monet, like that type. So he calls me and he's like, I think I found something. It's not anywhere in this hundred page list. So the next thing I knew, like we were looking at getting this, you know, when painters and paintings beforehand, they always do practice sketches beforehand. So it was one of those practice sketches. So it's so interesting because that's something that Tim and I had to work closely on and I learned so much from him. I I didn't know about all these practice sketches they do. And then what do you have to go through to authenticate it? And what's the value difference before you authenticate it, right? And what's the cost of authenticating it? And for tax reporting purposes, how do we value that if we haven't authenticated it yet? It was just really, really interesting. And he's just like a really cool guy because the thing is, because this is what he does, he has a lot of random stories. Like he was telling me about how, not him, but I think a colleague or someone in his business had to, they had to value these cockroaches that NASA was keeping for an estate. Like just really random. And the thing (laughs) is, I don't even know the story, 
But this is why I think that you guys should interview Tim because he's just so cool. He's so interesting. He's been in this business for God, like, I don't know how many decades. I'm not going to say because he looks younger than he is. And I don't want to be one to tell his age, but he just has a lot of really interesting stories. And he's met all these celebrities like he was in Barbara Walters house because we're in relation to some other estate. I think I just end up meeting a lot of people like him that they just have interesting stories. And I feel like just listening to y'all's podcast that you probably appreciate this. There's really a story in most things you look at, right? It's just how you look at it. So I could be sitting here telling you about like, oh, these cockroaches, which have like, I don't even know what, like stardust and this and that, and now NASA's involved and we have to preserve this and do this and that. And you like, you're laughing, right? And I think it's fascinating. Or I could be here like, well, I have to spend all day dealing with these cockroaches and it fucking sucks. Like, who cares about these cockroaches? I hope like they never die. Like I want them to die. <laughs> they, you know, so it's, I think for the line of work you do, you have to enjoy what you're doing. You have to appreciate the stories. You have to appreciate that like, hey, I'm spending a week sifting through toilet paper right now. But guess what? I learned a lot about French Impressionism in the middle of it. So, I mean, it's just that sort of stuff where you just come up with a lot of stories. And I feel like that it exposes me to a lot of people who have those stories and they can laugh about it. Then you create a good team, right, to manage the estate. Because for what I'm doing right now, the wealth level that I work within, what I tell my clients is that I am not the jack of all trades. You don't want me to be because now I'll be the master of none. So my job is I drive the bus for the estate. And then I bring in subject matter experts so we can maximize everything. So Tim, for example, I had an estate recently where I was like, I found a bunch of rocks. They look like they're in settings. I don't know if they're good or not. I have no idea because it's very gaudy. It's not my cup of tea. But I hear these rumors that they may be worth something. When people die, everyone comes forward and they think like everything's super, like everything's super precious. And they want to argue about everything. And things can often get very contested. So Tim's like, okay, no problem. You know what? I have a gemologist on staff. I'm going to put you guys in contact. So then talk to the gemologist. And then I had pictures of everything I sent over to her. Well, you know what? In the very corner of the picture, she saw what appeared to be gold-colored coins. So the next thing I knew, she was bringing her coin guy also to help me appraise everything. And then I was like, well, I think there's some silver, but it might be just really heavy silver, like cutlery. I don't know if it's silver or not. And then so like they come. So I have like a silver person. I have a gemologist. I have a coin guy. And they're just sitting there. And for regulatory reasons, we have to sit there and like basically accompany them for dual control. Right. And so they're just doing this. And I always feel awkward because I don't want to be supervising them. Right. They're doing their job. And I don't want them to think I don't trust them. But for regulatory purposes, I have to be there while they're appraising everything. And it's so cool because when you have a good group, they just sit there and they teach you about all these sort of things like, oh, hey, look at this pin here. And then they look at it and they're like, oh, that's not a pin. Well, it looks like a pin to me. They're like, oh, it's a ring dot. Like, fuck is a ring dot? No, oh, okay. So okay, you guys don't know either, right? Yeah, tell me oh, what a ring dot is. I know. Like, it's literally a ring. And then there's a tiny little notch on the back of it that if you push this one thing, it'll flip up and it can turn into a pendant. Oh, like, what? I wouldn't have known that, right? The silver person, they had, like, 
It looked like a medieval sword of some sort. And they were like, hey, do you any guesses what this is? So we're going around trying to figure out what it is. And like, no one knows what it is. It's like bigger than a letter opener, but smaller than like a sword, which I don't know what it is. It's literally a meat skewer from 1782. So now I know about meat skewers from 1782. So I think Really, what the job does is, it, I always joke it, it makes you really good for trivia night. So, <laughs> you stay in there long enough, you'll be good for trivia night. So, if we're ever in the same city, we can go to trivia night and hopefully we can get our drinks for free or win something good. So, <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> going through a lot of dead rich people stuff, you're probably seeing a lot of truth and honesty that you're not seeing when someone's representing themselves. What are some of the things through your job that you've learned about rich people or wealthy people that you didn't know before that surprised you? They're just like us. They are literally just like us. Like they will hoard toilet paper like us. They will hoard PPE like us. They have all the same family drama. I've been really lucky that I've had good mentors inter within work and outside of work along the way. And I remember one mentor said to me, I was kind of moving client bases between different levels of wealth. I was nervous. I was like, I never dealt with like, this is a new sector for me and it involves different things. And I remember she said to me, Hanny, don't worry about it. You actually know what to do. You have the training, you have the experience to back it up. Literally, the only difference is there's an extra zero. That's it. And she was like, the rest of it, you've got it down and you have the right people around you to make sure that like you don't lose your shit, basically. But yeah, the problems are all the same. Same thing with people in, I guess, maybe my wealth sphere. There's always crazies, right? And then there's always drama. And then there's always someone in the middle that actually is just very refreshing and just kind of brings you back down to earth. And you know what? That mentor, what she said to me, absolutely correct absolutely correct. There's difficulties, but I've also met some really wonderful, wonderful people that just want to do the right thing. They want to do right by their family. And I think if anything, it's taken away my apprehensions, which has been a blessing because I think, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like a lot of people are their own worst enemy. I thought I was not equipped. Like I feel like every job I've gone into, I go into feeling like I'm very ill-equipped for the job. And somehow I stumbled into it by accident. And someone, I actually like one of the person who hired me for my current job. There was one day I called him. I did the cryptic, like, can we talk? Which I never do that. Never do that to anyone at work. Like this, can you talk thing is not a nice thing to do. But he thought I was calling because I wanted to quit. I was calling because I don't know why I did this because I need a paycheck. But I was calling Basically, number one, to say I needed help, but number two, to say, if you need to fire me, it's okay. Like, I don't know why I would say that to a boss. I was like one year into this job at that point. Maybe. I don't know if I was even a year. I called him and I said, I've never really done this before. I mean, I have, but not in this kind of setting. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I'm very uncomfortable. And it's a blessing that this is maybe one of the first times in my career I actually felt like. I could reach out to my boss and say, I need help. I think before that, and I don't know if some of this is just the Asian upbringing that you have to put your best foot forward. And I also think sometimes being a woman in a white man's world, you really feel like you have to put your best foot forward. And for some reason, I just felt like, I think I need help. And I think I'm going to call my boss and tell him that. Then going back to like the self-deprecating, you know, I'm not good enough for this. I immediately said, I need help. I immediately said, and if you need to fire me, it's okay. I understand. 
<laughs> with like, no one's getting fired. It's fine. And I think that's been a blessing. So again, just having a lot of really good mentors and just being very lucky and being around surrounding yourself with good people professionally and personally. And he actually has moved on to a different part of the company, but is probably one of my favorite people. His family is wonderful and professionally. I still consider him a mentor. And ironically, that's how I ended up with state with the co-op situation that was talking about. Because <laughs> So he really sat down with me and talked me down a lot. Of, I think I noticed that the way that he approached things afterwards is a little bit different in terms of not like, oh my God, this account is bananas and it's crazy and it's going to bring in so much revenue and you're going to do it. And which usually would result in a lot of self-imposed pressure. And instead it was like, okay, this is going to come. It's going to be very interesting. This is how we're going to handle it. And we're going to do it together. The way that he approached this whole thing. So with the new particular New York account, with the co-op account, it was a husband and wife. And one had a lot more wealth than the other in terms of they were both very wealthy, but one came from generational wealth is really what it was. So it means that their estate realistically was much more complex. And then he came, I was like, I don't know if this is where there are a lot more experienced people within this group. Like, you know, maybe you should assign it to one of them and I can take some accounts off of their book to create bandwidth for them. And he said, no, no, this is going to be great for you because what we're going to do is you're going to be assigned to the spouse that had just a regular amount of wealth. And then this super experienced person that I know you work very well with is going to be assigned to the other one that has the generational wealth. However, because they died four days apart and lived together, the reality is that you're going to have to work together. So it's a great way for you to learn without feeling that pressure. It was wonderful because he worked with me on it. I got to work with my super experienced colleague who actually was a manager, my manager at a previous job. I learned so much. I learned about toilet paper. I learned about French Impressionism. I learned about different rocks because there were a lot of rocks. We were searching for jewelry. I remember my assistant one day, I was like, I don't know about that jewelry. She probably gave it away during her lifetime. She's like, Annie, there's probably like a hidden door somewhere. You need to start knocking on walls. And I was like, I don't know. That's where we're going with it. But I will say at the next other, the next estate I went to with my assistant, she stuck in her head that every house we go to will have like a hidden wall that has lost jewelry in there. And then so she like literally goes and knocks on walls. <laughs> I remember there was this one account. I'm going to tell you right now, like this was not an ultra high net worth account. And there was definitely like next to zero chance that there was jewelry in this account. But she was insistent. We could have to be thorough. You never know. Which to be fair, she's not wrong. You never know, right? And she sees this panel in the closet that she wants to undo. And I was like, that panel's there because there was a hole in the wall. But it was like very clear. It was like plywood with some like rusty nails on it. And I was like, no, we're not opening this panel. Like we have 10 million things to do here. And I will bet my paycheck that there's nothing behind that except for like dust and some like beans. Like that's it. And she was like, well, do you have tools in your car? Can we undo that? I was like, no, I don't have tools in my car. So no, like, please leave it alone and help me with the 10 million other things we need to do in this condo right now. Well, what do you know? Like she goes hunting through this condo, which by the way, was a hoarder's condo. And she found like some rusty like piece of metal somewhere and fashioned it into a tool so she could open this panel of wood. And I was correct. There was nothing behind it. But I mean, I think I don't even know how I got off on that tangent, but it's just like the way of thinking of going through things. You just you never know what's going to pop up. I think you maybe were asking about mentors or something. I don't know how I got. 
I will. I'm sorry. No, that was perfect. So what was the emotions? Because you were actually working for a year into your job. And so you were there actually for a while. And what was the emotion? What was the reason why you started feeling overwhelmed and that you couldn't handle it? In my professional life, I don't think I had really learned to build confidence in myself at that point in time. And I also really didn't plan on being in that sector. So I actually started off my legal career. I went to law school because I wanted to save children. Sorry, I didn't mean to chuckle there. I was very idealistic in terms of like, let's save the world. So I went to law school to do children's law. And I started off doing legal work for kids in foster care, which is very emotionally difficult. And people who do that, I think they're wonderful because it's very hard to keep people, good people in that sector because it requires a lot of emotional bandwidth in a very underfunded and under-resourced system. So the reality is that most good people will burn out at some point. And the ones that stay, I hate to say it, it's a noble thing, but a lot of them what, that I was working with them weren't really true advocates. But the point is that I went into my career thinking I was going to do public service. And then so public service also, quite frankly, means that you're not really even thinking about dealing. I don't think I'll ever deal with like paintings and gems and like hidden jewelry and things like that, right? Long story, but I basically fell into this position. And I think the job that I had, I would have some weird estate that maybe was the good talking piece that maybe I did a good job on. And I think to be completely honest, it's, you know, the things I did a good job on, it's because I had really good people around me and they gave me an opportunity and they believed in me and supported me. And so I think when you do a good job on something, it stands out. And then suddenly another opportunity opens up that you never thought would, and you just keep on walking through that door. But I think there was a lot of imposter syndrome going through it. Like you talk a good talk, but really you're like, I don't really know. There's a lot of imposter syndrome. And I think this is also during the pandemic. So just a lot of things going on and the imposter syndrome finally caught up with me. I finally caught up where I just, I really had to reassess a lot of things. I didn't know if this is the place for me, but it was actually probably one of the best things I ever did in my career was to tell my boss he could fire me. <laughs> actually, it was one of the best things I did because I think I had a safe place to be completely honest. I had a mentor who was incredibly supportive. And I think not only was he supportive for me in the ways that he could be, but he was also supportive in the ways that he knew he could not be and would therefore find resources to fill that hole. So for example, I think it's hard. I don't want to say it's hard. I don't want to just fall on this, but I think sometimes when you're a minority woman or a minority or and slash or a woman in an old white man's world, it's different, right? The experience is different. Here he is. He's a white guy in a white guy's world with this minority woman who is like crying and saying like, please fire me. And so he mentored me through a lot of things, but there's things that he's not going to understand because he's not a minority or a woman. And so he uh, would make sure that like I met other women and other minorities who had done really well for themselves. And I noticed, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I did notice that he would often introduce me to people or make sure I met people or bring on people on projects. We had one estate that this particular estate was all going to charity. It was to Women's Foundation in New York. It's a pretty big one. Luria Steinem was one of the founders to kind of give you an idea of the breadth of it. And this particular, we would essentially 
more than double their endowment with what was going to this foundation. And I remember when my boss at the time was bringing onboarding this account, he did all the work, honestly. Like he was the one who got the call because of his connections. He did all the onboarding, all the relationship management to get it in the door. And then he tells me, he's like, oh, this will be great. You're probably going to end up doing one of those publicity things where you do the big check and you hand it to the foundation. He's like, that'll be you and my colleague, Fran. And I said, well, Joel, that's really nice, but I think it should actually be you because you're the national head of a state settlement and you did all the work to bring this in the door. And he said, well, I had the connection to bring it in, but you're going to be the one doing the work. I'll help you, but it's you. But then he said one thing that I thought I really appreciated. I thought it was so aware. He said, look, this is a women's foundation doing great work for women and it's women who are working on this job. And you, you're going to have a white man show up and hand the check over. And he's like, that's not good optics, Hanny. He's like, I don't want to do that. Because if anything, in that particular instance, on paper, he should be the one doing it. He really did do the work to bring it in. Now, a few years later, I'm like, yeah, I did a lot of work on this one. However, he should at least be up there on the stage, right? But it was just like right off the top. There was no ego in it. It wasn't like the white man doing like, oh, here, let me do a do you a favor and prop you up. It was, no, you're going to do the work. And I am in a position where I am responsible for elevating people around me because they're doing the work also. So I think going back to your yeah. question about my emotional state when I had this conversation of like, just fire me. It's okay. I'll be fine. And I even called the county where I started my career to like see like what the job situation was. I need, if I need to uh, come back, like, is there an opportunity there? Yeah. I, I know it's like a little bit of like, I'm going to have to cut costs, but it can be done. It's fine. It's fine. But I think my emotional state was just very low. My imposter syndrome caught up with me. And I'm so, so thankful it caught up with me, number one. And number two, it caught up with me when I was in a place that was so supportive. So I'm very, very lucky for that, immensely grateful. And it's worked out very well for me. And I think I also feel like, quite frankly, that's the point where I started finding more stories on what I was doing. I think maybe in the years before, I would have been very stressed out about things. And now it's sort of like, you know what? You are doing the best you can with your abilities and somebody who knows what they're doing trusts you to do this. If I trust them and they trust me, then I need to trust myself, I think is really what it comes down to. So I think some of that also means that you give yourself a certain amount of grace, right? Like nothing's going to be perfect. And quite frankly, my sister brought this up to me one time. I think I was talking about, I feel like I'm always getting yelled at. (laughs) She brought up a really good point and she said, well, Hanny, you found jobs where people are just angry or they're upset or they're not at a good point in their lives. This is what happens, right? Like if you're doing legal work for kids in foster care, a happy situation that you're jumping into. And even this estate settlement stuff, well, what somebody just died. So you're either going to have people that are grieving and which rightfully so, right? And when you're grieving, emotions are high. And sometimes people don't know where to displace those emotions. So you're dealing with that. Sometimes you have people that come out of the woodwork, haven't seen grandma in 20 something years, but now they were everything like, oh, I did everything for grandma. Give me my money yesterday and things like that. So I think in the past when people are upset and they displace that onto me, I would take it personally. And now it's like, I just can't please everyone. It's not going to happen. All I can do is my best and I will continue to do my best and then I will learn. 
along the way because there's always something different, right? So I am I'm going to learn about toilet paper. I'm going to learn about French Impressionism. I'm going to learn about meat skewers from the 1700s. And that's just what we're going to do. And we're going to roll with it. And we're going to roll in the most responsible way that we can. Can you walk us through how it works? What is your job exactly? And what happens when someone dies? So when someone dies, you need someone to kind of clean everything up, right? So the initial basics is just you have to take care of all final expenses. So final tax reporting, any like last bills of like last illness. So it's a lot of health bills. They may have outstanding debts that need to be resolved. And then the rest of it. So you have to figure out what all those liabilities are. And then you have to figure out what assets you're dealing with. Because ideally, you have enough assets to cover the liabilities. And then you have this point in between. And that's what goes to whoever's in your estate plan. You leave things to your kids, you to your wife, whoever. Ideally, you have enough left over to distribute out to your heirs or whoever you wish to distribute it out to. So really, you have to figure out what you're dealing with. I think where a, a lot of misconceptions are is that they think it's just money, right? Like, oh, well, you have all the accounts, you can do it. I think that's where a lot of our beneficiaries, there's a lot of education that needs to be done. Like, oh, uncle so-and-so has 30 million there. So it's right there. Like, why can't you give it to me now? Well, I can't give it to you now because I don't know what debts your uncle had and they have to be first. And the reality is that you may think uncle had no debts, but maybe he like loaned 25 million to someone privately a month before he died. And it was just between him and his creditor. So you're going to have to figure it out. And usually, depending on the type of claims, eventually enough time passes. Like people want their money. So they're going to come forward with time, right? Usually, preferably sooner than later. Depending on the types of claims, usually there's a statute of limitations that runs where they have X amount of years or months or whatever to come forward and make their claim known and enforce it, essentially. So that's a lot of what we're dealing with. Then also in terms of assets, it's not just your bank accounts, right? It's every, literally every single thing that you have an interest in when you die. So it's everything under your house, unless if it's owned by someone else, like down to the toilet paper, right? Down to all of your jewelry, all of your household furniture, your furnishings, throw pillows, what's on your walls. Like, you know, that garage sale painting might actually be by some little known artist that's worth a million dollars. So all of that. So I would say usually it involves looking at tax returns first because you can get a pretty good idea of what their basic assets are from there. Then you go to their residence and then you bring in someone like Tim Luke. He's an appraiser. He's a generalist. But if you know that they're of a certain caliber, then you can kind of figure out like what level of appraiser that you want to come in. So if you're maybe dealing with someone whose death certificate said philanthropist. And I don't mean to do quotations like they don't actually do philanthropy, but they have a lot of money to work with. And I know that they were a patron of the arts and I might try calling like Sotheby's or Christie's and seeing if they can help us. If it's maybe a step below, then I might go to Hyman or Heritage. I shouldn't say step below. I just mean in terms of like the kind of stuff that they deal with. Or if it's household stuff, I might look for someone that's a little more local. That's not going to cost as much for the appraisal services. So then they can come in. You bring the generalists in. They walk through everything. And then they can basically help you catalog everything and put values on everything. And that's when, quite frankly, like even the toilet paper, 
we said, we asked them, we said, like, is there value here? Like, we just want to know. And maybe we can't sell it. If we can't sell it, maybe we donate it for a write-off. So everything is worth something. Or maybe like, you're just here to tell us that this is worthless. It's junk. It's not worth the time and cost to sell it. Just send it to consign it to auction. So just get rid of it. Get a dumpster and throw it out because you want to list the house and liquidate that. So you bring someone like Tim in. He appraises everything. If he sees things that are more specialized, then he'll bring in the subject matter specialist or refer you to someone else. So that's really it. Like figuring out liabilities, figuring out assets, not just bank accounts. Also communicating with beneficiaries to make sure, I think a lot of client management and just making sure they understand why this is taking a while. For estates, depending on when they died, there is a certain level where you hit the federal estate tax. So in 2023, it's I think 12.92. So if your estate's over 12.92, you're going to have to file a federal estate tax return. That's due nine months after death. And you get taxed on 40% of that. So you really want to get as many write-offs as you possibly can. But usually what I tell beneficiaries is, yeah, I know your uncle had all this money here, but we need to get everything together first. We need to collect information together first. And by the time that you file that federal estate tax return, you should know what's in the estate. Sometimes if it's a really complex estate or you have some possibly legitimate claimants coming out of the woodwork, then we might have to do an extension because we just don't know. Like, for example, if there's a lot of art, if there's millions of dollars of art, it might take you a while to actually appraise all that. So I have to extend it because I don't know what the true value is first. We're still working through all that. A lot of times we tell our beneficiaries, look, we can't even make a distribution to you until after we file that return. And when we file it, We'll do a partial distribution to you. So like usually, like let's say we file the return at nine months. Let's just say we extend it, right? Because there's like art and there's gold and there's hidden treasures because sometimes there's treasures. I've had estate plans that specifically refer to it treasures. It's like, we yeah. to file it. We file it. And then after we file it, the IRS has three years to audit you. So literally they can come back at you at three years minus one day and say, hey, we have a problem with this. We don't think you valued the art correctly. And then you go into auditing. So your exposure could be much more, right? If they don't come back to you within three years at the three-year mark, the statute of limitation like ends. So at that point, you're like, okay, the IRS cannot audit us now. So we're going to close this. So I usually do like a partial distribution after that we file the return. We do a partial distribution because we have a pretty good idea of what this estate's going to be. And then I ask our tax team to do a risk assessment. So basically saying, okay, here are the areas where the IRS may have questions too. So they may have questions about like, we don't agree with how you value the business. We don't agree with how you value the art. We think it might be worth more and therefore you owe more taxes. So then they do the risk assessment and say, based on that, this is where your exposure could be. So keep X amount in reserve just in case. And keep an additional amount in reserve for any sort of like lawyer fees or accountant fees that you may need to defend that audit. And then the rest of it, that's when I deploy out for that first partial distribution. Then I don't do the final distributions until we're done with the IRS because they will. So I hope that wasn't too boring. But anyways, I know I kind of like get into go off on tangents with that, but that's really, that's my job. So I'm just figuring out what the treasures are, figuring out what the junk is, figuring out like who owes what, and then walking families through that process. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. That was very clear. Now I completely understand. You've talked a lot about choosing jobs where people yell at you. 
And you mentioned a little bit about the reason you originally went to law to save children. So could you tell us a little bit about that part of your career? Yeah, I mean, it was actually only about two or three years, actually. So I worked for the Cook County Public Guardian. So usually, I think when people think about foster care, it's basically kids get removed from families or from whatever their situation is due to some sort of safety issue, right? And everyone thinks of in terms of the probably legal, whether it's a public defender or a private attorney for the family that's trying to get their kids back and the state. In most legal systems, there is also a third party and it's legal counsel for the child that's actually in care. So in Cook County, which is the county that Chicago is in, they are the first in the country to actually have a state department dedicated to this. So like most states, they'll have like, they'll have the prosecutor's office or DA's office, whatever they call it where you are, and the public defender. So in Cook County, there's a third office at the public guardian. So we represent the kids. I think when I tell people that a lot of times, it's like, how much legal counsel can you really provide the child, right? Well, you can actually, I mean, especially like sometimes I'm like, yeah, I have a newborn client. They're two days old. Like, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) Or you may have a client who's 18 or 19 because in Cook County, you can extend it up to their 21st birthday. So it depends on the child's situation. But I would say a lot of that was, quite frankly, petitioning the court to make sure that the state provided services and that the state would allocate their funding towards client for our children client. So a lot of it was, quite frankly, fighting the state. That was a very interesting study. I think I learned a lot about just resource allocation. The state really, I hate to say it, but the amount of funding that the governments get, it's very hard to keep good case workers on hand and that will stay through. So I would say I was only there for two or three, like about two and a half to three years. I probably represented about five to 600 kids during that time. Out of that five to 600, I wasn't the overworked one in the grand scheme of things. It's the case workers who are. But I would say out of all of those kids, there were maybe two that when I looked at them, I said, not only are you smart enough to make it out of where you are and actually be able to have the opportunity to go to a four-year university and successfully graduate and create a career from it, I actually think you have a chance to actually do that. Because one thing that was really sad was I had some kids who were very, very smart, but I looked at their situation and I hate to say this, I didn't know how they would make their way out. of it. It's like they don't know any better. There's people around them who love them, but they might not know any better. They just don't know any better. So for example, I had this one girl She's like one of my favorite people ever that I've ever met in my life. No idea what she's doing now, but she was awesome. So she was brought into care at a very, very young age. She was, I don't know, maybe like five, six, something like that. Very bright girl, very bright. And her parents, long story short, they had drug problems and they didn't have a lot of resources. And they were in a part of Chicago that's predominantly African-American. And that comes into play later on. But I remember I loved visiting with her because she always had all these questions and she was always thinking. And I remember she had some sort of fundraiser for school. I want to say it was like cookie dough or something like that. And at this point in time, her mom, who is, I think this mom is amazing. The system wanted her to do, I mean, to get your children back because of how bad it was to screen them into the system. You have to jump through fire to get them back. Especially if you don't have money to hire some like big shot attorney to make it happen for you. Like you really have to jump through fire. 
So this particular mom, not only had she gotten clean and stayed clean, she also was working, I think, like three jobs across all different parts of Chicago. And she didn't have a car, obviously. I and mean, she didn't really have money, right? But she figured out every single government benefit that she could qualify for and work these three jobs on different sides of Chicago, which means that she's taking the bus everywhere. So it's maybe like a two-hour commute between all of these different jobs. And she's going to her outpatient, probably at that point, outpatient drug counseling. But there was like, she had to go to like personal therapy, family therapy, drug counseling services, go to all these different testing locations to get dropped to make sure she was clean. And she did all of that. But I remember thinking in my head, at that point in time, I was taking public transportation to work. And I was like, I can barely do that. Okay, on the days that it's snowing, and it's really cold in Chicago. I don't know how I'm getting to the office. And she's doing this with three jobs and her treatments. How does she have time to visit her kids? The state's not going to give the kids back to her because they have no relationship with her. She has no time for a relationship. But for some reason, every time I visited these kids, it was very clear that mom was very present in their life. And what I realized about it one day was, mom, and I love this. I think that we can all take a page from this mother's book and apply it to our lives. These were non-negotiables for her. She had to do this for her children, and that's a non-negotiable. And she knew that the only reason her kids were in that situation, it was her. She could have prevented it and she was going to do everything in her power to make it up to them. And she didn't care how. You know, there's a blueprint, right? Like, oh, I have visitation with my kids during these hours. So I have to keep those hours free. Well, for her, she didn't have enough hours in the day to make free for her kids. So guess what? She's going to turn that bus ride into an activity for her and her kids, right? So it was like, oh, so they would tell me, oh, we went on this field trip with mom and we took that bus and we went to the city and we got to see all these things. And then it was like, okay, well, then what do you do when mom's at her drug counseling, right? Well, and then so this little girl, I remember she was hustling me for her school fundraiser. <laughs> she wanted me to buy cookie dough or whatever. And what my job at the time, you're conflicted from putting your own money into these things, right? So I was like, why? I can't, but let's look at what you have here. And I realized that mom, because like these bus trips are activities for them, it also means that she's sitting there at these drug counselors' offices while mom's having her treatment. And she has decided to hustle everybody at that drug treatment center. And so I was like, I recognize that name. Like, that's mom's, like, drug counselor. Yeah, that's her personal therapist. That's that. And this kid, she literally just, like, I don't think she necessarily saw that the way that her mom hustled, but the way that her mom saw that everything that she did, there is a way to make it work for you, right? In a positive way. And she applied it. So she was number one in her class for fundraising. And I was like, okay, number one, good on mom, right? Like she honestly, like for everyone, probably everyone on this podcast, we like we would be complaining if we had to travel two hours for each job and work three jobs, right? And balance family in the middle of it. But she never complained. And guess what? Her kids never knew that that was an issue for her. They never knew. We go on all these adventures with mom. We meet all these different people. And I was like, you know, this girl is so smart. Just the kind of questions that she would ask me. And I remember my last day with her. And this kind of goes into like, there's, there's really rewarding parts. There were really rewarding parts of that job. But there was also a part of me that was like, this is really hard. And it's sad because you wonder what sort of opportunities they'll have, right? And so I mentioned earlier that they live in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. I would say probably like 99.9% African-American. And I remember when my white colleagues would go there, they would actually have like racist 
things like yelled at them. I don't know like what, and then not any sort of like true racist terms, but they were like, hey, white lady, and they would be pounding on the car door as they're driving down the street. Well, when I show up, they didn't know what to do with me because they don't see Asian people. I would call some of my teenagers and be like, hey, I'm going to be there. I'm going to get there around this time. I'm taking the L train there. And they're like, Miss Hanny, you can't take the L train. Not to this. And I'm like, yeah, fine. I'll be fine. I just moved to Chicago. I didn't know the neighborhoods any better. And they're like, no, Miss Hanny, you call me when you get to this stop. So I have enough time to walk to that train stop and meet you there because they recognize that like there is some sort of racism that can quickly turn into violence. But I would say for the most part, when I would walk through those neighborhoods, they didn't really know what to do with me because they hadn't seen someone like me. I would get random things like, Kung, hey, Kung Pao chicken yelled at me and which I know it's maybe not the best thing to say, but in my head, I was like, hey, they're not pounding at my car door because they don't see me as someone who's been like historically been an enemy for their people, right? Like I'm just someone who looks a little bit different and the only thing they know is Kung Pao chicken. So like this little girl, I remember when I was leaving the office, there were certain clients that I built a relationship with that I need to say goodbye to them in person. So I go to visit her and her brother. And I remember thinking like, God, I hope she has a future here. She's so smart. Like the way that she's just looking for opportunities, hustling her mom's counselors, just enjoy. Like she gets to essentially see Chicago or she gets to see neighborhoods she wouldn't typically see because she has to ride the train and ride the bus with her mom. You could tell something was bothering her. And then the more we talked, and so finally she just let it out because she knew we weren't going to see each other again. And she said, Miss Hanny, I just have to ask you a question. Why are you different? I don't know, honey. Like, what do you mean? Why am I different? You could tell she didn't want to stay it and she couldn't figure out how to word it. And eventually she was like, well, you just look different. Like your eyes are a little bit different. Your hair is a little bit different. And I looked at her. I was like, oh, well, it's because I'm Chinese. And I thought, that would register. She didn't believe me. She thought I was lying. She was like, no, Miss Hanny, like, quit lying. Like, no, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I'm literally Chinese. My parents are from China. Then they moved to Taiwan when they came here. Like, I don't know what to tell you. And I spent all this time trying to convince her that I actually was Chinese. Even like, oh, my Chinese name is Hanny. So my American name is literally my Chinese name phonetically spelled. Still didn't believe me. And so finally I was like, well, what do you think my name is? Which I was like, well, what do you think I am if you think I'm not Chinese? And she said, well, you're a regular person just like me. You just look a little different. And I, I swear that's always stuck with me that she knew I was different, but she knew I was the same. And the way that she could extrapolate things like she sees the way that mom approaches life and she extrapolates it and applies it to her cookie dough fundraisers right and the way that she sees them different but we get along so we have something common like she applied that which I feel like for a lot of kids that's a hard thing to do and so I always think about her because on one hand it was so beautiful and it was so refreshing but on the other hand it was kind of like you may never see another Chinese person again. Unless if some opportunity pops up somewhere, a lot of people in that neighborhood stay in that neighborhood forever, right? And they literally don't know different. Like the only thing that they know to do with me is say Kung Pao chicken. So kind of things like that, you see potential and you don't know if it's going to get the opportunity to actualize itself. I had one girl who I truly, one of the two that I thought would make it to university. She lived in a group home, big plans to be a lawyer. And I thought she would be very good at it, actually. She was incredibly smart. 
And she had a plan for herself and she got herself a mentor. I think she was like 17 or so. So at that age where you need to start preparing and she was researching like for kids who come out of foster care, what sort of support do they have? There's a lot of scholarships. There's a lot of government funding that can help you get into college. So quite frankly, like help you with housing and school supplies and tuition. And so me, her, her mentor, we were all working on this plan. And I remember this is when I was leaving the week, no, two, three weeks before I was leaving, she disappeared. No one knew what happened. And then we were searching for her, couldn't find her anywhere. And I remember my last day was a Friday on Wednesday. She showed up in my office because she had actually been kidnapped. And she ended up actually quite, not to get down about things, but she was pimped out actually. So she was at the player's ball. And so I learned a lot about the player's ball, which not transferable skills. I learned a lot about that day. And she showed up at my office because it was like four o'clock and her caseworker, this is again, going back to it's hard to find good people to stay because it's underfunded and undersourced. Her caseworker said, well, I get off at 4.30, so I can't help you out. So she showed up at my office with nowhere to go. She had escaped and she needed somewhere to go. And I was in the awkward position because I'm her attorney, but she's underage and I'm not her legal guardian, so I can't consent for her. And so we had to get her into a shelter. But to get to the shelter, they always do health screening first before they admit you. And to do the health screening, you need the guardian to consent to those screens because it's a HIPAA issue, actually, also. So it's like things like that. And I remember that day, we eventually figured it out. I had a wonderful intern who, wonderful, and he actually was really helpful with it also. And we worked through it together and it was fine. I think I got home at midnight that night, but I would say, unfortunately, so that's one of the stories why I say it's hard because the first story I told you, she has a lot of potential incredibly smart. She has a wonderful mother, but I don't know if she would ever make it out of that neighborhood, right? And then this one, she had very smart, a lot of potential, knew exactly how to get out of the neighborhood and knew all the resources available to her, but something happened and like that. So it was really very, very difficult. One thing I thought about because I went to school for that, right? Like this is what I wanted to do with my life. And it was kind of like, I have a lot of law school loans. They're not as bad as a lot of my friends, but I mean, they're not small either, right? It's underfunded, which also means that you're not really making that much money, which is fine. I wasn't in it for the money and I wasn't expecting to make money off of it. But it's also, you need a lot of emotional bandwidth, but you also need a lot of emotional boundaries if you're going to have any sort of longevity in that area. And I didn't see that for myself. I didn't see myself being able to work within that system. And I thought, okay, I think this is not where I can make a difference. If I want to make a difference, it needs to be from somewhere else. So it might be policy work. It might be uh, going somewhere where I have access to join boards and actually like change how some found or affect how some foundations are run. So that's kind of how I got out of it. And it was more of I just wanted to put myself in a position where I could really be more thoughtful and intentional about how I was going to make a difference. I do actually, someone else maybe that you guys want to meet sometime, my paralegal, amazing, amazing. And he's very open with this story. He was in foster care. He's a success story. He did go to college. He was homeless while he was at university. He was living out of his car at one point. So he then went to paralegal school, got his paralegal certificate and decided that he wanted to, he saw how poorly sourced the system was for 
foster kids who aged out, right? Like you age out instantly, there's no funding for you. You're on your own. If you want to get a job, if you want to go to university, like you're really on your own. You have like very limited resources available. But he wanted to make a difference. That's why he first joined the office I was at as a paralegal. And he has since gone on to do wonderful things. I don't even know where he's working now. Like he worked his way. He went through the system, worked his way up in ranks to where he was in a position of power and decision making within the state. He implemented a lot of structural changes for kids who are aging out of foster care. And he's on LinkedIn. He always has some sort of project that he's working on. So usually if he has a project that I feel like I can help out with, then I do because I trust his judgment and his knowledge on it. It just, he's such a success story and he did it on his own and he's putting it back into actually truly make a difference. And he understands in a way that I and a lot of people never would. So yeah, I admire him so much and he's made such a great life for himself. I just admire him. So, and I remember when he started, I was like, oh my God, like, what are you doing? Like, because he would literally go off the rails. I'm like, this is not within the template that we're supposed to work within that I was trained on. And he's like, that's not what they need. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, this is what the office is telling us per this policy and procedure. This is what you do. And now you have just thrown like everything I've worked for, like out the window and I have to go back and correct it. Now that I have the years looking back and more perspective on it, I'm like, no, Jeremy did the absolute correct thing. And I'm so glad that he was very professional about it with me, but I knew I wasn't the priority. (laughs) I really admire him on so many levels. So when he has things I can help out with, I want to. And it may be something as basic as, hey, I'm working with this organization and there's a Christmas list for kids in foster care, kids who are aging out. What can we do to help? So if I have a nice bonus or something, then like we'll probably use some of that for like to help make some of the wishes happen and things like that. But I would love to introduce you guys to him. So I just want to like create a pipeline for you guys. So you yeah. can meet the people I get to meet. No, this is incredible. I mean, I'm very excited to meet him. Especially given the context of the fact that you spent two or three years, like 500 kids, and only two of them kind of stood out to you, and both of them you didn't even know could get out, right? And I putting myself into a situation like that, and for sure, I would not have gotten out. I'm like, I'm an average kid. I actually have the ability to get out of that system. He must be so incredible. Yeah. He really is. He knows who he is. I think everyone can learn from someone like him. Yeah. I really, really admire him very, very much. And all the things that he does, I feel like the way you do. And I don't think you're average, just so you know. I think that you're wonderful. <laughs> but for sure. I mean, yeah, I'm not special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had people helping us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. I came up with, came across great work mentors and yeah. like family support and like whatever way it comes. I think out of the three of us here, like I don't know if any of us ever really thought that it was not an option to go to college. Right. Like that's a given. And here it's like, okay, well, maybe they'll make it out of middle school. We don't know. Yeah. So yeah, definitely learned a lot. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about too is like after you left working with kids, you ended up stopping an organized crime ring, right? I just wanted to ask about that. Yeah. So, okay. So when I knew I didn't have the longevity to stay within child protection, One of the issues I came across with was in my career, I've only done this. So, and the skills aren't really transferable if you want to make a pivot. Because at that point, you only have two, three years of experience. And I can't really go into a job interview and tell you like, oh, this is what I know about the player's ball, right? Like, here's like, I got called Kung Pao Chicken. How about you? Like, you can't go into an interview like that. And you don't really have 
things that can transfer out to even put on your resume. So I was like, well, how do I do this? And that particular office also has a disabled adult division. So, which is basically adult guardianship. So for like, I guess the best way to explain it is like, let's say the whole Britney Spears thing, right? It's a conservatorship because theoretically, depending on who you talk to, she didn't have the capability to make smart, sound decisions for herself. So somebody was appointed to do that for her. So where that happens a lot is when people get older and they have age-related disabilities like dementia, Alzheimer's, that sort of stuff, where, you know, at some point their cognitive abilities decline where they can't manage things anymore. And some people don't have family that are able to step in, or they may not have enough wealth to justify, like, for example, like a bank stepping in to act as trustee, stuff like that. So there are government offices that will get appointed to manage someone's finances and their affairs for a healthy and finance. So where I was working, they had that office for disabled adults. So I was like, okay, well, they know who I am. They do good work. But at that point in time, I'm going to take a step back. I had another moment where I think I had just, I don't think it was confidence. Like, I feel like I've built most of my confidence in recent years, but I had a moment that I would maybe call more delusion. Maybe I could call it confidence now, but back then it was definitely delusion, <laughs> but like shameless delusion. So I was like, okay, I want to transfer into that department. It's downtown. I can do something else that has transferable skills and they know me. So they know, at least they know my work ethic. And then I can learn from there. It'll be fine. But the problem at that point was in government work, there's a lot of hierarchy, right? Like you put your time in and then you get promoted. You put your time in and you get like the opportunity to go here or go there. And at that point in time, for the last time that office had an opening, the person who got assigned there had been at the office seven years. So I was like, mm, well, I think I'm like a quarter or maybe a third of the way there. I don't know if I can last five years before going there. And the reality was people wouldn't really apply to go down there until they at least made five years. So they're a little bit more likely to be considered. So I just started applying for every single time they had an opening there. If there was a supervisor position open, I would apply. I remember even my boss was like, Hannah, you realize that supervisors are applying for this, right? I'm like, it's okay. It's fine. Me and my two years will be just fine. Don't you worry about it. And then there was some sort of like writing workshop. And the head of the downtown division was one of the mentors. I was like, well, if I sign up for this workshop, get to work with that, with the head of that department, and maybe they'll know me and maybe they'll like me. And I got so lucky. He was signed as my mentor. So I just, I remember like if he wanted to go over whatever my newest writing sample was, like I would kind of insist that we meet in person and I would go downtown. I would wear a suit and just like put my best foot forward. And I didn't really have any business applying for these sort of positions, but I just did it so they would know me and hopefully keep me in mind. So then something came up and I think at that point in time, I think those positions would turn up like maybe one opening would show up every like two three years or so in cook county let's just say you get to that department when you're at seven years what 10 years your pension vests and for a lot of people at 10 years that's when you're th doing family planning or you already have a family and you have really great benefits and pto or when you're a government employee so at that point once you get downtown it's like you know what i may not be a millionaire but I can make a comfortable living and have a really good work-life balance. And now I have a pension and that pension is only going to grow as long as I stay. So maybe I'll just stay here. So because of that, it was very rare to have openings downtown. And so I think I had applied 
twice at that point. They had two openings show up in one year. And so both times, like someone super senior with many, many years above me got the position. So I think the third time a position showed up, I was like, they already know I want it. Because at this point, they're joking like, oh, here goes Hanny again, like throwing her hat in the ring. And so I didn't apply, actually. And then the head of the department, who is now my writing mentor, called me. and He was like, I'm a little worried that you didn't apply. Like, was it something we said? Where are you not interested anymore? I was like, no, I absolutely am. I just... I already applied twice and he's like, well, you know, if you want, you can come down this afternoon and talk to us. So I tell my boss, I was like, I have to go home. I have a chance to meet with Chuck and like apply. So I go home, I throw on my suit, I go downtown. And so at that point, I think they had already decided that I think they had a feeling that they would probably ask me to join. So when I got there, they were like, almost joking because they had already asked me all the questions they wanted to. So they were like, what can you tell me about Marbury v. Madison, which by the way is a landmark case, but from the 1700s. And they were like, tell me the exact site for Marbury v. Madison. And what about this case law and that case law? Like things I haven't heard of since my first year in law school. So then, but they're landmark cases. So now I feel like an idiot because I don't remember any of these citations. I can't tell you like who is on the Supreme Court in 1802 or like any of that. So I leave this interview like, oh my God, all the goodwill I had built up, I'm not going to get these. I don't know anything from like the first year of law school. But then I got downtown. So anyway, so that was my delusion. I was just like, what do I have to lose? Let's just go. But going back to the ring that we broke up. So this is a disabled adult division. You do a lot of guardianship, conservatorship work because the bulk of the people who end up there are probably age related, right? So you're going to have a lot of people who are elderly, dementia, Alzheimer's. And a lot of that, I feel like a lot of it would fall into like a lot, two categories show up a lot. One was hoarding right? You come up with that a lot. But then there's also a lot of financial exploitation that happens. Like you guys know, with all the scams that happen nowadays, like the little old lady is a prime target for them and they just trust everyone. So we had this client. Wait, actually, I forgot one little part. So in the middle of this, I did this for a few years. And then I actually got an offer with I got invited to join a boutique firm in Chicago that does this primarily. So the point is, I went into private practice. And when I was in private practice, they actually had some, I don't know if they had official contracts, but they basically had a pipeline with a lot of elder abuse agencies. So that would refer cases over. So because of my background with the county, a lot of the elder abuse cases would get assigned to me, like especially the ones that had litigation. I think they were literally like, she worked with the county. She dealt with a lot of unsavory people. She'll be fine. You know? <laughs> so I got a lot of the litigation. Which was totally fine. So it, it's two cases really is what it was. So the first one was I had a client called and they said, hey, our aunt's like she's been scammed. It was by there was a housekeeper and they're like, she's been scammed. She's been scammed out of about $30,000 during this last year. What do we do? So they retained me so they could get some legal authorities over their aunt. And the aunt was not cooperative because it's you're losing your liberties, right? Like you think you're fine and suddenly someone thinks you're not fine and they're going to control all of your money. But she had just lost 30000 and a lot of this trending is like when the scammers, they meet you and they see you're a target and they'll start small and then it gets bigger and bigger. So like 2000 will turn to 10, will turn to 30, will turn into 100, will turn into like your entire life savings. So we're like, okay, let's nip this in the bud right now. So we basically did some legal work, did some, then we went into court and we were able to put a stop to it. So controls were put in place and the rest of her assets were preserved. So a few months later, 
I get a call from the elder abuse agency like at four o'clock in the afternoon. They said, we had this woman who was being scammed and we need you to go into court tomorrow. We need an emergency court order to freeze all of her assets while we complete our investigation. So it's like, okay, well, send me over the bank records and then send me over what all of your investigation notes. So they fax everything over. This is before, um, this is when fax is still a very common thing. Like they fax everything over. I look over it and I think, wait a minute. I know the name of this housekeeper. I've dealt with her before. And I, so I call them. I say, listen, this is not a one-time thing. I dealt with this person before. So this is a two-time. This is a pattern. So you know, call the police right now. Like, we will get into court. I will stay late. We're going to file this emergency petition. We'll get the freeze order. But call the police because we have a serial scammer. So they call the police. The next thing I know, the police is calling me and saying, can you please not go into court? And they're like, well, we have to go into court. Like she's already, I think at that point she'd been scammed out of, I don't know, like $60,000, $70,000. And it was the bank that called elder abuse, actually. Sometimes banks, I think you're at the mercy of your client, right? Your client tells you like, it's my money. Let me withdraw it. And they may be presenting very well. So you kind of have to listen to them, but you know something's off. So you're looking for something to help you, give you the coverage to stop what you internally know is not good, but you don't have the power to stop. So they called elder abuse and were like, we think something's happening here. Please help us out. The police are like, they said, they asked me, please don't go into court. I was like, well, I have to. She's bleeding money right now. She could be cleaned out within a few hours. And the police said, we're aware we've been investigating this. And essentially what it was is that this is part of an elder abuse ring that was happening within the south suburbs of Chicago. And what was happening to our lady was the drop in the bucket. And they were worried if we went into court, we would send these people on alert and they would just like hightail it out of town. And so we had to work very closely with police and with the elder abuse agency and quite frankly, with the court to make sure that we kept everything under wraps, that we only disclosed what we had to, and that we only asked for what was absolutely necessary to make the bleeding stop and to protect her without compromising the police investigation. So it, it did involve, in court, they, they always say there's a lot of hallway lawyering before you actually get up to the bench. So there was a lot of hallway lawyering. I worked with, the other part of this is that the woman who was being exploited was very angry and she thought we were trying to take away her liberties. And she lawyered up right away. Now was like, oh, shoot. Because she was one of those people where she had maybe probably like early onset dementia, but not full-blown dementia. Like she presents very well. And she's not completely incapable of decisions. She can still make decisions, but she's compromised enough that she's at risk. And so she lawyered up right away. And it was law firm that tends to bill a lot. So I was like, shoot, like if we don't stop the bleeding there, it's going to be eaten up in legal fees and she's going to fight this. And she's with it enough that she can put up an argument like, well, we'll win eventually, but it's going to take months of litigation. But luckily, the attorney that actually managed the case is a person of integrity. I had never worked with him before, but I have immense respect for him of this solely because of this one case, because he literally said, look, this is what's happening. This is what we need to do. And he said, okay, well, this is what my client wants. Tell me what you need from me. And I was like, this is, look, if you can just do this one little part, it'll allow, put me in a position where I can at least put in some protections for her. 
And he knew his client well enough that he could present things to her in a way that she would listen. So luckily, we didn't have to go to trial. Thank God. I thought it was going to be months long of litigation, but we were actually able to come to a settlement. We had a bank appointed to manage her assets, and we actually were able to recover about $800,000 for this woman. And she only, like, I think her net worth was maybe slightly over a million. So, I mean, essentially, we recovered like 80% of her life savings. But I remember it, it was so complex because it was part of a larger investigation. And so we're, I should actually go back to what happened is, so this particular housekeeper, you know, the little ladies, they go to church like every day. They go every morning at 11 a.m. and they have their little groups and that's our entire social life, right? Which is great. Like for each person their own, it's great that they have a community. But this person had inserted herself into that church community. So she would find the little old ladies and she would target them and get in with them either as a maid or as a caregiver, a housekeeper, whatever it is they needed, she would get in with them and then she would get their trust and then she would start like slowly taking money away from them. And at first, I thought when the police were telling me this is part of a larger thing, I thought it was this one lady. Well, back then, Google wasn't as scrubbed or as curated as it is now. So you can find all sorts of crap on Google. I just like Google her name one day, and it turned out that this lady herself was subject to a guardianship. She was actually possibly disabled herself, and she was just a pawn in the middle of a larger ring that was actually based in the Philippines. So they're based in the Philippines and they found someone who can present very well and is not cognitively sophisticated enough to really question anything, right? So she was taking directives from people in the Philippines and then going into these churches with this script and then she would just target all these people. So really like my little lady with her $800,000 was part of a larger ring that was run in the Philippines. So that's why the police said, please don't go into court right now. Please work with us. So when we were finally able to do this, I forget the exact details of this, but I remember like the way that it was timed. It had to be timed where the police could actually like catch people, right? So when the arrests were made, that's when this whole case made the media. It all started, quite frankly, because we're like, I know that name, that, that she's not a maid. Like, I know. Really, really awesome is that that particular elder abuse agency, you don't hear too many success stories. Usually it's like, okay, we caught the bleeding and we stopped the bleeding, but that's the best we can do, right? Like, that's usually where it stops. And it's like your success is that you were able to preserve what you could. You very seldom can say, we got everything back. We restored 80% of her net worth. So that was a huge success story. And then so um, the elder abuse agency actually used that specific story and took it to Springfield when they had to do their lobbying with legislatures there to basically amend the law so they could be better resourced and quite frankly, to get better funding. Like, hey, state, we need more funding and here's why and here's what can happen if you can give us the funding to give us the correct resources. We can actually protect these people. We can actually restore them, restore what they've spent their entire life working for. It was actually probably one of my favorite things I've ever done. I know I talk about toilet paper and like hidden jewels. I mean, everything kind of came into line. Like we had to, I had to work with the different attorneys on the account because I think we ended up with like 
five, six, seven different attorneys, like <laughs> representing various agencies and people. We had to work with different attorneys. We had to work with the judge. We had to work with the elder abuse agencies, with the bankers, with banking legal departments, with the police, with the doctors, with the church, because the woman who was exploited was refusing to make herself available. And so we had to think, okay, we have to meet her in a way where she's comfortable because one of the things to actually get protections put in, in place against someone's will is to have me evaluated, right? So like Andrew and Will, like, I can't just be like, okay, I know Andrew, right? I can't just be like, hey, judge, I don't know about these decisions Andrew is making. He is buying way too much candy. These are bad decisions. We need to get an emergency order to restrict his account so he can't buy all this candy anymore. Like, I can't just do that, right? Now, if I say, well, judge, like the candy is actually like he's buying so much candy that it's affecting the well-being of himself and his family. And he's not exercising good judgment. And the judge is going to say, okay, well, I hear what you're saying. You're not the correct person to tell me that he does not have the mental capability to exercise judgment about candy purchase. But who is, is a doctor who can assess him and then say, okay, I have personally assessed this person. They have cognitive deficits. It's not about the candy. It's about what his decision-making that he's exhibiting. There are cognitive deficits that require intervention. So the thing is, this woman was with it enough that she knew that meeting with a doctor would not be to her favor. So she was refusing access. She wouldn't meet with anyone. But we're like, okay, we need to get her somewhere where she's comfortable. Maybe the church. That's the one place that she trusts. So we actually worked with the church to get a doctor there and create an environment where she was willing to meet with the doctor. And I almost feel like it sounds skeezy in the sense of, okay, yeah, we conned this woman into meeting with this doctor so we could control all her money. But really, the doctor like went over everything with her. He explained exactly why he was there and what sort of questions he was going to be asking and for what purpose it was and what the consequences could be. But he created a safe environment for her, right, where she agreed to it. So it was a lot of teamwork, a lot of really good professionals, and it yielded a good result, which in that line of work, you don't always get. So Anyways, one of my favorite things I've ever done. That is the ring that we broke up. That's amazing. <laughs> Pretty cool. One last thing I wanted to ask you about is ice skating. Could you talk a little bit about ice skating? Oh, gosh. I only say this because, okay, if at any time you cut me off because we're over time, like just say so, or if I'm just going off on tangents. I used to figure skate as a kid. I think when the Nancy and Tanya Harding thing happened, I was like, four is amazing. I must have skating lessons. And so I did. And, uh, and, you know, I competed a little bit in it. And it was just a fun thing that I did. And I had a really good coach who, like, by luck of the draw, had trained with Olympic level coaches back in California. So what I'm saying there is I was very lucky in the years I spent ice skating. So... I would say maybe even before, a little bit before the pandemic, every now and then people go ice skating and then I'll put on some skates and it's fun. I was like, oh, I'll get back into it. But you never really do, right? And life just gets really busy and you get wrapped up in career or family or whatever, whatever adulthood brings. And I do have to credit my sister, Andrew's wife, with some of this. She had started skating again. So I had kind of heard a little bit about her going to the ice rink and the classes she was taking. So this little bug was in my head. So there was that. Then I turned 40. So as you get older, your body doesn't recover from things the way you used to. Like after a night drinking, you don't bounce back the next morning the way you used to, right? 
And so like when you work out, it just takes longer to recover. And I'm like, my knees hurt, my back hurts. I sleep funny. It takes me a day to get my spine back in line. And when I was turning 40, I had a few friends. I had seen a slew of friends turn 40 in the recent times. And they all approach it really depressed. Like, oh, it's not a new decade. Here we are. Life sucks. Everything hurts. I would say this is probably, let me think, timing wise. This was after I had had the conversation with my boss where I was like, you can fire me. It's fine. And he had worked on developing me professionally. And so not just professionally, but I think maybe also quite frankly in my life. I was at this point where I was like, okay, you know what? You're not as awful as you think you are. And if you are, you can get better. It's okay. I think everything was more of a blank slate and just kind of in a more proactive state of mind. And I thought, I don't want to be like all my friends all depressed about turning 40. It just really sucks. And maybe I still have my old skates. They're right there. It was basically like in defiance of turning 40. And also I knew that my body wasn't getting younger. So if I wanted to get back into skating, I got to do it now. And so actually the week that I turned 40 is when I laced up my skates and I went back to the ice rink. There's an ice rink by my house. They have this adult skating session during lunchtime. So I just go during my lunch break and I skate and it's wonderful. And it's one of the few things I do that's just solely for me. I don't do it for anyone else. I'm not competing. I'm not trying to get a medal. I don't get paid for it. I pay money to do it. My body, like I have so many bumps and bruises from it. So I solely do it because I love it. And it is one of the best things I've done for myself. Like it's solely for me. Like even when I feel like shit and I have like, I remember the first summer after I started skating again, I only wore pants because my legs were so bruised. Everyone's going to think that I'm, they're going to want to like want an intervention with me, but it's like, no, I just go ice skating. Like, I don't know what to tell you, but it's opened up a whole new world for me. Like there's the adult ice skating community is wonderful because there are literally people who you're an adult ice skating. What are you trying to prove? Like, you're not going to get a gold medal. You're not going to the Olympics. There is nothing except for yourself to do it for, right? And then you meet people like everywhere from in their 20s to 70, 80 years old. And some of the older people, they're so fucking cool. I remember I saw this woman, she's like 72 or something. And she picked up ice skating because her grandkids were ice skating and she just figured it'd be something to, I guess, connect with them on. So she was in group classes with me. And you know what? She's 72. She's learning. She's spinning. She's jumping. She's doing all these things. And she's 72. She'll be padded up everywhere. Like She's got elbow pads, knee pads. Like sometimes there's a helmet. At my age, like you can't take risks, okay? But she's doing it. And these people are just really something about the freedom of doing it for yourself and not doing it for anyone else. And also just kind of the freedom of being like, why wouldn't I do that? Why not do that? Why not that 72 years old, like strap on a helmet and try jumping on a shoe that has knives on it? Let's just do it. So they've really helped me kind of open my mind in a lot of ways and given me this new freedom to life, which I'm internally grateful for. So I go during my lunch breaks. Everyone on my team at work knows that I skate. So I'll be like, I think I'm going to work from home today because I want to go skate. There's some ice time. Like everyone knows that. Sometimes if it's an internal meeting with my immediate team, sometimes I'll just dial in from the ice rink up on a place. I'm like, oh, okay, here I am. And then I, this past summer, I went to an adult skating camp, which actually one of, there's a coach there that I also think you guys should interview. We can talk about that later. But it was literally, I met one of the girls at the rink. She, on our text chain, she texted, she's like, hey, you guys should go to the skating camp and part of the coaching staff for. I was like, what coaching staff are you part of? 
she's been back at it longer than me. So she's a little bit better than me, but she's not like doing triples, right? So I'm like, what coaching staff are you with? And she's a visualization strategist. And so she's part of the coaching staff for this PM, not in a skating capacity, but in the capacity as a visualization strategist. And she was like, yeah, there's all these coaches there. I'm looking at the coaching list and there's Gracie Gold, who, by the way, placed fourth at the Olympics in Sochi and probably should have placed third because the girl who won recently admitted that she tested positive when they were drug testing before the Olympics. Anyways, that's a side note. But the point is, I mean, you have Olympic medalists there. Yeah, you world level skaters. And I was like, I don't have any business skating with these people. Like I'm just if you look at like my Instagram, it's just bloopers. And then she is like, she was like, no, Haney, like they have this kids camp during the week. And that's kids that are like hoping to make it big or like they're on that competitive track. And then on the weekend they do the adult track, which is just people like you and me. So I was like, okay, well, why not? So I went and I got to skate in classes with these Olympic level coaches. There's an opportunity to do private sessions with them also. So I did private sessions with Gracie Gold, your private session with Drew Meekins. I now have my own personal skating coach. So I asked her what to work on beforehand. And so she's like, oh, no, Gracie's really good with this jump. So you got to ask her to work on this jump. And like Drew's really good with this. I asked him to work with that. And I thought I would be embarrassed because they work with Olympic level skaters and I'm not, but they were so cool. They were so, so cool. So, I mean, that was a big deal. Like I remember everyone at work knew I was going to this adult skating camp. I was like, I know I usually check messages when I'm out, but I will not be checking messages. I will be busy. Thank you very much. And so now like I'm going to go next year. I'm going to go again. I signed up for that local ice show which is kids skating recital with one adult number but i'm gonna do it because why not yeah, and it's funny because when you sign on the paperwork for the skating camp and for the ice show it's like the signature line is for the parent or guardian of the skater and i'm like self <laughs> <laughs> did you also get coached on visualization too i have not but i think i want to try i so Christy Powell is a visualization strategist. She has a very interesting story with how she got involved with Road to Gold, which is that adult skating camp, how she developed her practice. Every now and then she'll do a free group session. So I've done that free group class with her before, but I'm kind of interested in doing a private session with her because she was my roommate at Road to Gold. And so I got to know her more. And there's a lot that she does in her practice that she doesn't necessarily advertise. Because you kind of have to buy into it to some degree, right? When I first heard about visualization, I was like, yeah, I'll pretend I'm a spring on my jumps. Yes, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> like when I talked to her, she said, well, you know, there are certain things that you can't just say, yeah, I'm going to tell you to bring it, be a spring so then you'll jump higher. Like, but you have to find a way to bring people into it and then you coach them through it, right? She actually has some really elite level clients. They're not just skaters. And actually one of her clients who is a skater. He was one of the skating coaches at Road to Gold. He is a ice dancer in Great Britain. And they, I think just yesterday, this was their first year on the senior circuit and they won the silver medal. So they are number two in all of Great Britain. They'll be going to the world championships and she's our visualization strategist. And it's not my place to say like some of the techniques that she's worked through with them, some of their practice methods. I think it's really made a difference in that partnership and their ability to perform and perform under pressure. She works very closely with her coaches. It's very fascinating. So now that I know more about what she does, I kind of want to do a session with her. 
So she's really cool. You guys would love her. She's so cool. And she doesn't care about looking like an asshole. Not an asshole, but just like an idiot. Like if you look at my skating stuff, like I have a lot of bloopers. Like she has an equal number of bloopers, if not more. Like when the girls at the rink found out we were rooming together, they were like, well, Hania has like her bloopers and Chris's <laughs> bloopers. Like together, like this is going to be disaster. Like I hope there's an ER close by because like this can't go well. But yeah, she's felt a lot of fun, a lot of really good energy, a lot of laughs. And you know what? Like she's helped me with some of my elements, honestly. If I'm on the same mindset as her, as her she'll just like start talking to me about, oh, well, maybe try doing this with your spin. Try doing that with your jump. And it helps. And it's just good to have true, whatever you love to do, just have cheerleaders in your corner. And the entire skating community, I would say here in Chicago, um, really are super supportive. This is another conversation. I have a fund that I do to give grants to like animal rescues. Well, guess what? One of our fundraisers this year, there's a whole table full of adult skaters. They just showed up. They don't know what I'm doing, but they know it's important to me. So they just showed up and filled up an entire table. And on Giving Tuesday, they donate to my causes. And like I do the same for them. And it's just going through life and skating and trying not to kill ourselves while we're doing it. And it's awesome. So that's my skating life in a nutshell. <laughs> amazing. Hey, this has been amazing. You've really, at least for me, stretched, helped me see kind of different worlds that I think many of us are just not exposed to and laughed and told us stories throughout. Well, you guys are a lot of fun. So thank you for giving me a place to just verbal diarrhea with whatever comes to mind. No, it was amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're such a great storyteller. No, it's a good time with you guys. So thank you. If, uh, if anybody wants to find you or get in touch with you how can they do that so my instagram is literally this it's the same name that i had when aol aim came out i just have kept it the same it's hanners 302 so h-a-n-n-e-r-s 302 and my tiktok is moons over my hanny so you know like the denny's dish moons over my hammy so i just changed hammy to hanny so that's my tiktok (laughs) (laughs) and i'll be there I'll see you guys there. Perfect. See you there. No, thanks so much, you guys. It was a fun time. (laughs) Bye. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, W-L-D.S-H-O-W. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you.